0: you're all very very welcome here today and we're pleased to see such a great turnout. I'll now uh, turn over the dais to the executive director of the VEE, Joe Maroon. Thank you, enjoy the lecture.
1: Thank you Jamie, a lot of good things going on here at Virginia Historical Society. We're just pleased to be a partner with them on a special occasion as he's already mentioned. Good afternoon, this is a great crowd. Uh, I am Joe Maroon, the Executive Director of the Virginia Environmental Endowment. As a co-sponsor of this banner lecture, it's my privilege on behalf of VEE to say a few words about the program, the endowment, and to introduce our speaker. Today's lecture could not be more relevant. With news headlines that proclaim massive cuts in environmental programs and the rolling back of federal environmental oversight. And with Congress and the administration looking to curb Clean Water Act protections, it's instructive to look at the history of an environmental disaster that happened right here in our backyard. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the legal settlement that included a fine and a payment into a fund to create the Virginia Environmental Endowment. VEE is a private, independent, grant making organization that was established in 1977 as a result of the Kipone disaster. In fact, VEE is the silver lining to that dark cloud. This lecture is one of several initiatives that we have co sponsored or sponsored or co sponsored this year to celebrate 40 years of success in working with nearly 500 partners, nonprofits, universities government agencies, schools, and communities, to improve our natural resources. So much of what has been accomplished is due to the achievements of our partners, which is why we recognize 22 of them today, along with the presiding judge at the time, Robert Marriage, as partners in excellence in a ceremony that took place earlier here at VHS. Many of them, many of our partners in excellence are here with us for this program as our current and former members of the VEE Board of Directors and our first Executive Director, Jerry McCarthy. We have collaborated with VHS on a number of things and as uh, uh, Jamie just mentioned, one of those was the exhibit that's opening today which provides a snapshot or an overview of the last four decades of environmental progress. Perhaps you saw it as you came in or if not, I hope that you'll take a look at it on the way out. Now I'll have to stop and say it was a little difficult to put the entire past 40 decades, four decades, in about 200 characters. <laughs> so it's a, it is an overview, we think we we hope that you'll find it valuable. Yesterday, our board of directors approved 10 additional grants for a wide range of environmental projects that brought our total giving to nearly half a million dollars this year. Now, as for our speaker. Greg, Dr. Gregory Wilson is a professor of history at the University of Akron, which of all places is where I grew up. And he could have been at the University of Toledo or the University of Timbuktu, but it turned out (coughs) that he was from the University of Akron. In fact, he grew up in Virginia. I grew up in Akron. We may have been switched at birth, but (laughs) I have a, he's a whole lot younger than I am, so that's probably not true. He grew up in uh, Newport News, earned his PhD from Ohio State University. He spent much of the past year researching the story of Kipone, which he hopes to publish in a new book in the very near future. In doing his research, Dr. Wilson had a Mellon Fellowship here at VHS and utilized the VEE Environmental Archives collection, among many other sources. I had the pleasure of meeting Greg last year and hearing him speak on three different occasions. Whether you're familiar with the Kipone disaster or not, I believe you will find his presentation enlightening, entertaining, and relevant. The story of Kipone was well known 40 years ago, even 20 years ago. But with each passing decade, it bears retelling lest we fail to heed the warning of history and somehow fail to provide for vigilance when it comes to protecting public health and the environment. Now, just before... Dr. Wilson Speaks, we want to show you a full-length film, so sit back and relax. Actually, it's a two-minute video <laughs> on, uh, on the history and impact of VEE. That's, again, the silver lining of the keypone story that will follow. Thank you. In 1975, an investigation found that a chemical
2: plant in Hopewell
1: was polluting the James
2: River with a highly toxic pesticide. The Commonwealth banned all commercial fishing from Richmond to the Chesapeake for the next 13 years. In 1977, the resulting court settlement set aside $8 million to establish the Virginia Environmental Endowment, America's first grant-making foundation devoted exclusively to the environment. For the past 40 years, the endowment has protected the health of Virginia's air, land, and water awarding 1,400 grants to nearly 500 partner organizations. That initial $8 million settlement grew into $28 million, spurring $80 million in environmental research, education, outreach, conserving natural resources and landscapes, and improving Virginia's waterways and the Chesapeake Bay. VEE has provided seed grants and early funding to some of Virginia's most prominent conservation organizations. The endowment has also supported environmental programs at Virginia universities and awarded more than $600,000 in college scholarships. The Virginia Environmental Endowment will continue to make strategic investments to bring innovative solutions to critical environmental challenges for the next 40 years and beyond. For more information on VEE and how to contribute to its work, visit VEE.org.
0: sure how to follow that, but I'll do my best. Thank you so much, Joe, uh, for that kind introduction and remarks. I want to thank the VHS and the VEE for uh, bringing me here today and for uh, helping me try to figure out the history and legacy of, of Keypone. So thank you all and thank everyone for coming today. This is such a great crowd and we'll try to make sure we have some time at the end for any uh, questions, which it, maybe we have a bunch, so we'll see. So um, but let me, uh, let me take you back a little bit to the pre-dawn darkness of a July muggy 4 a.m. early morning in 1975. Lieutenant R.L. Anderson of the Hopewell Police Department is in his squad car on a routine patrol. And Hopewell, if you don't know, small city, about 23,000, situated at the confluence of the Appomattox and the James Rivers, about 25 miles southeast of Richmond. The officer likely drove southeast uh, through town along Randolph Road, Route 10, and the main thoroughfare through Hopewell. He no doubt understood why the sign at the edge of Hopewell along this road welcomed drivers to, quote, the chemical capital of the south. On his left, he passed by the Life Science Products building right here, a small chemical operation on a half-acre site in an old gas station. Just beyond life science was the sprawling Allied chemical plant, one of the world's largest firms. Along the James River, it was a maze of pipes and buildings. Lieutenant Anderson drove past Allied. He would have looked to his right. He might have passed by what he and others in the area called the pebble plant, It had been Allied Chemical's pebbled ammonium nitrate plant right here. This is where the company made nitrogen fertilizer, and it sat just across Randolph Road from Allied's main facility. Just east of that pebble plant, off the road a bit, Anderson noticed two men standing at the back of a pickup truck. It's not known, by me at least, if he talked to the men or if he knew them, but he observed that the truck had a large tank filled with liquid that the men were dumping into a large pit there. The two men probably did what life science worker Frank Arigo remembers, doing on a very similar trip with a co-worker of his. The co-worker, Frank said, backed the truck up to the pit, not a line pit, just a hole in the ground. They got out, opened the valve up, and just sat around talking till that whole thing drained. Arigo remembers that stuff was smoking. With the plume visible from Route 10. Unsure whether what he saw was legal or authorized, the officer apparently filed a report with his superiors, but nothing came of that. It turns out the men were dumping waste from Life Science that contained Kepone, the brand name for a pesticide known as chlordicone, along with other chemicals used to make it. Life Science held an exclusive contract with Allied Chemical to manufacture Kepone. What Anderson happened upon that July night was not the first trip that that pickup truck, fixed with a 250-gallon tank, had made to the pit. Workers dumped perhaps as many as 30 or 40 tanks there before. Indeed, such goings-on were not uncommon in 1975 Hopewell, which had long been the butt of many jokes. I smell, you smell, we all smell Hopewell. (laughs) Local historian and resident Jeannie Lankford remembered those jokes. She said, yes, I remember them. It may have smelled, but that was the smell of money. It was the chemical industry that made the city. It came into existence, 1912 thereabouts, when the giant DuPont chemical uh, company built a dynamite factory there on land right along the James River. That had been the Hopewell Farm Plantation. When the First World War began, DuPont switched to making gun cotton there, or nitrocellulose, for weapons. The city ballooned quickly, a multinational, multiracial, diverse population of about 45,000 people, and it earned the reputation then as both the wonder city and the toughest town north of hell. (laughs) With the economic collapse of World War I, DuPont shuttered its factory, and the town's population dropped. But over time, in the 1920s and 30s, other companies moved in, including Allied Chemical. And by the time of World War II and immediately after, Hopewell's population had rebounded to what it is roughly today, somewhere around 23,000, 24,000 by about 1970. By the middle of the decade there, Allied had employed more people in Hopewell than any other industry, about 3,500 workers. Not surprisingly, the workforce reflected the era's norms. Managers and plant workers were white men, the difference being the upper management might have had a college degree. Some African-American men might get a job in the plants, but usually they were janitors or perhaps laborers, and women dominated the secretarial pool, and they were the office managers. This is Allied's plant circa about 1950 or so. Now these jobs were valuable jobs, especially for workers without a college degree, and they populated the factory floors at Allied and other companies in the area, and at life science products as well. And it was especially true in the 1970s when the economy was sputtering. In these uncertain economic times, when life science advertised, or more likely hired by word of mouth, it was an opportunity. For some, perhaps a way to gain experience before getting hired on at a larger company like Allied. Virgil Huntofta and William Moore had both worked for Allied and they incorporated life science products in November of 1973 with the sole purpose of manufacturing keypone. Allied held the patent for Keepone, and they had produced it in Hopewell from 1966 to 1974. Before Life Science, Allied had created similar arrangements in the early 60s with other companies, including Nice Chemical, which manufactured it in State College, Pennsylvania, and also Hooker Chemical in Niagara Falls, New York. Few people were aware that Life Science's hastily built facility, pictured here, was the world's only supplier for keypone while it was manufactured there. A fluctuating workforce of about 30 to 35 at any one time, life science operated around the clock to meet the demand. This small facility produced some 840,000 pounds of keypone from March to December of 1974, and another 846,000 pounds of keypone from January to July of 1975. The production of keypone involves combining several chemicals they are mixed as a liquid, transferred to quench tanks, which you can see some of those in the front of this image here. Then, the base and acid and water are added to make a gelatinous cake like precipitate that's kipone. That is then filtered, cut into pieces, dried, and then turned into a fine white tan powder that is then packaged into barrels for shipment about 90% of the keep that was made was shipped overseas for use against two global agricultural pests, the Colorado potato beetle and the banana root borer or banana weevil. Hopewell then and life science products in the converted gas station were part of a larger global network of labor and production process that were associated with pesticides, the potato and the banana as well. Some keep home was made domestically, a very little bit, in ant and roach traps. But most, again, was shipped overseas. Now, outfitting that pickup truck and arranging for dumping waste at the pebble plant was Virgil Huntofta's latest effort to find somewhere to put the company's contaminated wastewater. From the beginning of its production in February of 74, life science plants struggled to contain the Kepone. In fact, the very first discharges out of the life science facility contained so much Kepone that they killed the bacteria used to digest waste in Hopewell's sewage treatment plant. Plant workers then had to use a 100 by 150 foot containment lagoon to hold thousands of gallons of what they called bugless sludge. From, From then through July of 75, about 15 to 20,000 gallons per day of keepone waste entered the waters in Hopewell and the James River. This came even as members of the Virginia State Water Control Board and the workers at Hopewell's sewage plant tried to have engineering fixes installed to contain it. These were not enough to hold or treat the waste. In October of 1974, Huntofta decided to hire two septic tank operators, to dump wastewater from the top of Hopewell's landfill down the slope and into Bailey's Creek, which then emptied into the James River. The pickup truck at the pebble plant only came about after the landfill stopped allowing those trucks to dump their waste there. Life science workers even took excessive wastewater and dumped it directly into the sewer drains on Life Sciences' property, bypassing the filters that had been installed to try to capture the keep home. Some workers, like Steve Keevey, remembered being directed to a sewer pump station not far from the life science plant, where they dumped barrels of chlorine into the drain there, he said, quote, maybe to cover up a discharge or something. When the chlorine became too expensive to purchase, workers used Tide detergent to mask the smell to avoid detection at the sewer plant. Once it was in Bailey's Creek and other waterways, the the waste flowed into the James River where it eventually would empty into the Chesapeake Bay. And it wasn't just the contaminated water that life science put into the environment. They also allowed Kepone powder to blow across Randolph Road on a regular basis. Kepone blew into an ice plant that was right across the street from life science. Later investigations showed Kepone dust as far as 40 miles away, In 1975, Kit Weigel worked as a reporter for the Hopewell News. She later became the editor of the paper. And their building was diagonally across from where life science was. She said, there'd be all this particulate matter falling on our cars, and I'd go out at night and dust it off the windshield so I could drive home. But people did not think much of it at the time, since releases like that came from other larger plants in that area as well. The Reverend Curtis Harris, noted civil rights leader, had his church and his home on Randolph Road, very near Life Science. He had to close the windows to the church on a regular basis to keep the dust out. We assumed this would last for a short period and blow over, he recalled. If you live in an industrial area, you tend to pay less attention. Despite the dust and the problems with the sewage treatment plant, Kepone might have faded as a news story and from our historical memory. After all, this was Hopewell, the chemical capital of the South. Where it seemed in 1975, most people didn't worry too much about spills, smells, dust, or bugless sludge. But officials in Virginia who were aware of what was happening were not so alarmed that they decided to shut the plant down. But a visit to a doctor by one of life science workers, Dale Gilbert, changed that. Gilbert was a life science supervisor. He was 34, by all accounts, a physically strong and sturdy man. It's pictured here in this newspaper photo. And Gilbert had worked in Hopewell for, since the late 1960s. He'd grown up in the mountains of Southwest Virginia. And he had a neighbor, Delbert White, who's also pictured here with him. And it was White who asked Gilbert if he'd like to come work at Life Science. Del White was a former Marine. He'd worked at Allied and then become a plant supervisor at Life Science in 1974. Gilbert said, at the time, I thought it was a good move. He'd been making $250 a week in his other job, and the new one at Life Science paid him $278.50 a week. Although Gilbert worked long hours, according to his wife Jan, he was a man who had always been able to handle whatever came his way. Gilbert started working at Life Science on a part-time basis at first, and then he became a full-time worker at Life Science in January of 1975. Gilbert noticed his hand and body tremors about 2 weeks later. By March, he began having severe chest pains, and by June he was too ill to work. He had also had twitching eyes and weight loss. He had what workers at Life Science called the keophone shakes. According to Gilbert, the plant was like a dust storm most of the time, with keypone powder covering everything. Other workers reported similar kinds of situations. Donald Fitzgerald, who goes by his middle name Tom, had served in Vietnam. He worked at a dryer and packaged keypone powder into the barrels. The pace, he said, left him little time for breaks, so he often just stood at his station eating his lunch. Quote, between the clouds of dust. Thurman Dykes, like Fitzgerald, also operated a dryer in what they called the bag house. Dust settled on just about everything, Dykes said. Kepone would stick to your body. Management, Dykes said, never told me about the dangers of keepone, only to be careful handling the acids that went into making the keepone. Fitzgerald said, management admitted that the reason everybody was shaking was because of quinine. However, he said, it was not anything to worry about. Delbert White had the shakes himself, and he didn't think it was anything to worry about either. So like some workers with the shakes and other symptoms, Gilbert visited his company doctor, who happened to also be his family physician, who, quote, prescribed him a tranquilizer after first inquiring if Gilbert was a heavy drinker. Others who went to local doctors received similar advice or were referred to psychiatrists. Not satisfied with the diagnosis, in late June of 75, Gilbert decided to seek other assistance. His wife's friend recommended that he see a new internist in Hopewell, Dr. Chow, a 33 year old immigrant from Taiwan. Chow was not one of the doctors in the community, not commonly used by allied or life science. And unlike these physicians, Chow seemed puzzled by the symptoms, and he sought to find an answer for what was causing Gilbert's medical problems. After talking with Gilbert, Chow suspected keep poisoning, and so he put Gilbert in the hospital. He then sent samples of Gilbert's blood and his urine to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, for testing. Gilbert's wife and their three children were also tested. His wife showed an enlarged liver and spleen, Two of his children had rapid eye movements and one had mild tremors. It took about three weeks for the CDC to complete their tests, and it was on a hot and humid Friday afternoon in July of 1975. Dr. Robert Jackson, the state epidemiologist, was in his office working on a Friday in July. That's impressive, right? And he received a phone call from the CDC and they told him that quote they had a blood kepone level from this sample of 7.5 parts per million that level was quote quite high the most they had ever seen was 5 parts per million and they told jackson that certainly this sample must have been contaminated by someone pouring kepone into it for they couldn't believe that one human being would possess so much kepone in his blood Well, Gilbert had then been referred to a neurologist at Richmond's MCV, the Medical College of Virginia, Dr. Taylor. Taylor examined Gilbert, immediately confirmed Child's diagnosis was correct. Taylor noted that Gilbert had lost 40 pounds, he had tremors, unusual eye movements, a rapid pulse, and enlarged liver. Taylor also feared Gilbert could have suffered brain damage. At this point, Robert Jackson decided to intervene. Originally, he was from New York, He's 33, blonde hair, stocky, known to speak his mind. And he called Life Science directly to arrange to examine workers that were coming off their afternoon shift and then also to visit the plant himself. Jackson reported, The first man I saw was a 23-year-old who was so sick he was unable to stand due to unsteadiness, suffering severe chest pains. On physical examination, he had severe tremors, abnormal eye movements, was disoriented and was quite ill. Jackson admitted him immediately to MCV. He examined other workers, and out of those, six had varying degrees of keepone poisoning. He then decided to go visit the life science plant himself. Now, as these events were unfolding, any government attention to the issues that I've been talking about were really at the state and local level at this point. An EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, pesticide field inspector had visited the life science plant, it turns out, in March of 75. That inspector came for the purpose not to inspect the plant, but rather to determine whether Kepone could be listed as just an ingredient in a pesticide or as a pesticide itself. If the latter, it would be subject to federal regulation. If the former, it would not be. That inspector was never allowed into the production facility, only into the main office. A former employee of Life Science, Ray DuBose, had filed a complaint with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. His complaint, though, was deemed a discrimination issue, not a workplace safety issue, and so OSHA did not visit the Life Science plant. Some Virginia government officials apparently had visited Life Science before Jackson, According to plant manager, Dell White, he escorted, quote, the water control people and people from the air pollution control board through the facility. Dale Gilbert remembered many officials coming into the plant. Quote, I really thought that all the agencies had been there. White walked through the plant with officials from the Travelers Insurance Company, which had a policy on life science. They mentioned that there was no problem there. Even allied officials apparently came through the facility. And everybody seemed happy with the way things were going, White recalled. Others, perhaps, but not Jackson. Now there was an emerging public health crisis. It was July 23rd, 1975. After he finished examining the workers, he went to visit the life science facility. Jackson, quote, wearing rubber galoshes waded through puddles of keypone contaminated water in a makeshift factory filled with keepone caked machinery. He saw massive building air and ground contamination with a white-gray-brown substance I was told was Kepone. Before this, Jackson had never heard of Kepone. On this tour, Jackson asked about protective equipment for the workers. The few that he saw were wearing hard hats, but nothing else. I asked particularly about respirators, because in the drying room where the dust was quite thick, he was then led to a desk, he said, on which some papers rested. Underneath the papers, a pile of dusty keep home, or a pile of dusty keep home, were three white plastic gauze filters, which clearly had not been used in some time. Well, the next day, July 24th, Huntofta and Moore decided that they would shut down the plant voluntarily before Jackson and the health department were going to do it for them. And by the end of 1975, about 75 of the 149 workers who worked at Life Science at one point, over that 16 month period, had varying levels of ketone in their blood. 29 former workers and one uh, spouse were admitted to the hospital because of severe ketone poisoning. Other wives and some children, like Gilberts, had mild exposure to Kepone because the workers would bring the powder home on their clothes or on their bodies. Fourteen of the men were diagnosed as sterile. At the time, Jackson feared that even a large number of the men might be permanently disabled. Other physicians and toxicologists at the time were equally alarmed and fearful. Although many had never heard of Kepone, it was listed in the Handbook of Poisons. Allied conducted tests on, pest, on tests on the, on as early as the 1960s. And those results were available to Allied and to life science. The main conclusions from those tests were that kepone like many other toxics used as pesticides, not only affected the central nervous system and reproduction, it also caused cancer in laboratory animals and could possibly cause cancer in humans as well. Dr. Taylor, the neurologist from MCV noted that there was no human reservoir of testing or documentation of the effects on Kepone other than that which they were witnessing at that moment in 1975. Now that this was all out in the open, the investigation into into Kepone in Hopewell began to expand beyond the poisoned workers. Biologists from Virginia State Water Control Board fanned out to gather sediment and fish samples around Hopewell and throughout the James River. We really didn't know what we had with keypones, said Dennis Tracy, <laughs> who I know is here. <laughs> I hope I got your quote correct. <laughs> <laughs> but he and others working in this field seldom did know what they had when they responded to the many calls for environmental crises across the state in the early 1970s. Testing showed that Kepone was in the soil and in the waters around Hopewell and in sediment, and several species of what were commercially viable fish and shellfish, especially oysters, in the James River. As investigators were learning, Kepone is a persistent organic pollutant, or a POP. It's a class of compounds that includes other more famous ones like DDT, for example, and like these, keypone is resistant to environmental degradation. It stays intact for long periods of time. It becomes widely distributed throughout the environment, in the soil, in the water, and in the air. These compounds accumulate in the fatty tissues of organisms, like human beings. And it increases in concentration at higher levels in the food chain. Small amounts of kepone for example, taken up by sediment dwellers, like mycids or oysters, or clams, could then become more highly concentrated in predator fish or humans. Humans that consumed the fish that ate the oysters that ate the Kepone might be high enough levels of Kepone, or there was a risk at least, such that things like cancer or damage to nervous systems or disruptions to the reproductive system could occur. Kepone was now a huge environmental issue. Governor Godwin pictured here issued a fishing and harvesting ban for the river in December of 1975, which caused economic damage to the seafood industry at the time. Many feared that perhaps even the entire Chesapeake Bay might be infected with keep home. Governor Godwin then formed a keep home task force to address the issue, to gather information and coordinate the government's response. And he appointed Dr. James Kenley, pictured there standing, to coordinate and lead that effort. With the contamination now in federal waters, possibly involving interstate shipment of seafood, workers being poisoned, the federal government now began to respond more forcefully. Two agencies, the EPA and OSHA, were particularly involved. Knowledge of the pollution of Kipone and also its effects on humans and other organisms began to grow as these investigations got underway and also legal proceedings began. In January of 1976, the House of Representatives and the Senate both held hearings on Kepone. The House even visited Hopewell to hold one of their hearings on it. Evidence from a federal grand jury investigation that got underway showed that it was allied, not just life science, that had dumped Kepone and other chemical waste into the waters of Hopewell and into the James River. This news, coupled with other revelations, now led to a series of lawsuits that involved poison workers, the seafood industry, the city of Hopewell, the state of Virginia, the U.S. government, life science, and Allied. <laughs> it was a complicated legal uh, mess, perhaps, but it began to move forward. And it was U.S. District Judge Robert Marriage, who Joe had mentioned earlier, that presided over the federal cases that dealt with Keep Home. Okay. Marriage had flown 48 combat missions in World War II as a radar specialist in the Army Air Corps bombers. He was known for his integrity, his humor, his kindness, but also not suffering fools in his courtroom. Apparently there's a story that he once ordered his own father out of the courtroom for falling asleep. I don't know if that's true, but it, if it isn't, it, it could be. And it was Marriage who gave the critical part in making the Eastern District of Virginia known as, quote, the rocket docket. In his 31 years on the bench, Marriage would preside over a number of important cases, including the Quipone cases, and he would not shy away from any of his verdicts. Marriage wrote the decision that threw out the appeals of Watergate figures, including G. Gordon Liddy. He ordered the University of Virginia to admit women in 1970. He clarified the law that allowed pregnant women to keep their jobs. It was marriage whose controversial decisions in 70 and 72 that ordered busing as a means to integrate schools. And for those decisions in particular, protesters paraded weekly outside his home, spat in his face, burned down a guest cottage on his property. They even shot his dog to death after they had tied its legs. So perhaps on October 5th, 1976, marriage's ruling on Kipone felt rather easy for him. (laughs) 940 counts against Allied, and a major, what was then largest fine given in any federal pollution case of $13.24 million on Allied. At the time, it was the largest fine And in announcing it, Merritt said that pollution, quote, is a crime against every citizen. The environment belongs to every single person, every single citizen, from the lowest to the highest. But he also suggested that if Allied could make efforts to address the problems caused by Keep Home, that he would be open to reducing the fine, but not the total amount that he had stated. And so, as we've heard, in February of 1977, an agreement was reached whereby Allied's fine was reduced to $5 million, and then $8 million was put in to create the Virginia Environmental Endowment. Now, there were other legal cases that went forward as well, and I won't dig into those complicated ones today. Marriage imposed a fine of $3.8 million on life sciences for 154 charges. He also fined two owners of Life Science, Moore and Huntofta, $25,000 each, and placed them on five years probation. Marriage also placed the city of Hopewell on probation as well. For allowing Life Science to dump the Kipone into the waters of the James. In the 16 months before Life Science was shut down, they produced somewhere around 1.8 million pounds of Kipone. More than Allied had made in its entire run from 66 to 74. In 1978, it was the EPA that estimated somewhere between 20 to 40,000 pounds of capone had settled in the bottom of the James River, where it still is today, covered over by sediment. And although Virginia lifted the ban on fishing in the 1980s, there are still Warnings and cautions for anglers about Kepone in the James, along with other chemicals such as mercury or PCBs. Now, outside of these court cases, the workers, the seafood industry, also filed their own set of lawsuits. These cases were all settled out of court for undisclosed amounts. The fishing and harvesting ban led, again, the shellfish operators, the oyster tongers, the clammers, crabbers, marine owners, all of those to file their own suits, all settled out of court. Finally, both the city of Hopewell and the state of Virginia received settlements from Allied to recover their costs associated with the investigation and the cleanup of Kipu. There was also, um, I'll skip the details on those, There was also new legislation that came about because of this. In Virginia, the Toxic Substances Information Act came about in 1976. Among other other things, requires manufacturers to report the toxic substances they use to the state. And at the federal level, we have the Toxic Substances Control Act passed in 1976 as well. For its part, the Occupational Safety Health Administration revamped its rules and regulations to focus more on uh, occupational safety safety and health than they had prior to Keep Home. And later at the federal level, the Clean Water Act put in amendments to deal specifically with the control of toxic substances. Now, the issues of health and the legal issues went beyond Hopewell, they went beyond Virginia, they went beyond the United States. Today, as I I said, Allied ship most of its keypone overseas to what was then West Germany, where it was then remanufactured and used in pesticides sent around the world. On the islands today of Martinique and Guadeloupe, the French West Indies, its heavy use, chlorticone's heavy use in banana plantations there, have poisoned the land, the drinking water, the fishing stocks in the nearby sea, and created a massive public health crisis that is now currently underway. All of this and the history of Kepone in Virginia led the United Nations to ban chlorticone or Kepone uh, in 2009 as a persistent organic pollutant. That includes things like DDT as well in that list. So the Kipone story is at once a very local story. It's a personal story. It's a Virginia story, but it's also a national and a global story as well. And as I've come to research it and begin to write about it, i realize that it's a story that reveals failures of imagination, failures of oversight. It reveals callous, apathetic, arrogant, and deceptive behavior. But it's also a story that reveals thoughtful, imaginative, and courageous behavior as well. Those on the islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe certainly know Clortacone very well, perhaps all too well. Those in central Virginia, Hopewell, Richmond, and other places who lived through it, who dealt with it, or were exposed to it certainly remember it as well, and many of you in this room certainly do. But in the larger collective memory, outside of central Virginia, and really beyond, even in the United States, the Kipone story, I think, is unknown, as Joe alluded to earlier. And its lessons, I think, are also largely unknown, which is partly why I came to this topic, and I'm looking forward to getting it out in book form. I first became aware of Keep Home when I was a child. I moved to Newport News, Virginia, in February of 1976. And I remember hearing how this chemical was in the river and in the fish. And I knew little of its deeper history back then, but that memory stayed with me as I left Virginia, traveled to Ohio, and became a historian. And I decided that I would revisit this issue of Keep Home to come and see the James River again, to get acquainted with this area and this region, my family, my friends, and to see what, if anything, might remain of this event in history, in the archives, and in the memories of the people who lived through it, who were exposed to it, who responded to it. I came to find that I visited the area as I combed through all the records that, and I talked with many people and did oral history interviews, that these events held and continue to hold a very strong place in the memories of those who experienced it, even if at times people wondered why I was bringing up, quote, the K-word again. These events also made an impact on how various institutions and organizations, whether local, state, federal, consider toxic substances, consider the ecology, and consider workplace safety. I also came to learn that... Kipone's legacy goes well beyond Virginia and well beyond my own childhood. Kipone and toxic substances generally are a global issue. And the book that I'm working on represents my effort to try to bring this story of Kipone to a larger audience in hopes that perhaps we might learn some powerful lessons about ourselves, about our institutions, and about our relationship to the planet. Thank you. I think we'll have time for questions.
3: Very human story, for sure. Um, It was mentioned early on that the uh, EPA is being rolled back. How will that play out or in your judgment or your forecasting uh, on such things as toxics mm. and emissions and that sort of thing?
0: Well, I'm a historian, so I can't predict the future, right? Um, <clears throat> well, I wish we could. No, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, clearly the regulations um, are being rolled back, or at least they, they seem to be being rolled back. and as um, Joe and I co-wrote an op-ed piece in the Richmond Times Dispatch that looks at one particular thing dealing with court case settlements like the one that created the VEE. The Justice Department, I think, is or has considered removing those now as uh, federal settlements. And certainly in terms of the, the regulations that the EPA and other, other agencies have, uh, yeah, the threat is to roll those back. So even as, as limited as those already were in many cases, the threat would be to make them even weaker which, in my judgment, would be, would be a poor decision, yeah. I'm going to follow Graham and okay. to see who's got questions next, so sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. In view
3: of the attack that's occurr- currently occurring on the news media and the fact that 60 Minutes did a number of broadcasts about this, do you feel that uh, the news media play an important role in making the public aware of these occurrences.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. There's a there's a story about when Dan Rather visited Hopewell and he stood on the roof and uh, where the dust was, and so there's a, there's a very good, um, a lot of memories, people I talked to remembered that, and uh, in Hopewell today, Dan Rather's name is not spoken quite very highly among certain circles, so, um, but, um, but definitely, I think the, the media attention to environmental issues was growing fairly steadily throughout the late 60s and early 70s, and so when Keepone hit the news outside of Hopewell outside of Richmond, it fed into that larger awareness that had been going on since DDT. Uh, Silent Spring was published by Rachel Carson in 62. There was news about PCBs in the Hudson River in New York. So Love Canal would come a little bit later here, but it formed, yeah, it definitely formed part of that larger awareness that I think the news media, Um, and political leaders were beginning to recognize. And it definitely played a part in in this story, for sure.
3: Quick observation, and that is that uh, anyone who goes to Hopewell today knows it's still serious problems down there. In fact, the TRI data shows it the number one toxic emitter in terms of zip codes. Um, Question for you is, were there ever any criminal um, indictments or convictions associated with this matter?
1: Uh,
0: the the court settlements that I outlined were the ones we've got. So in other words, the um, there were federal court cases. The Allied one was the big one, and then there were the civil suits. But no one went to prison. If that's your question, yes, that is your that no, no one went to prison.
3: What happened? What happened to the men who... Sorry, where are we? Who were pictured... I'm over here. Go ahead. What happened to to the employees that that you pictured there and the two
0: owners, uh, as far as their health is concerned, and the other employees of the plant? Yeah, that's that's another great question. Um, There was a lot of fear and concern at the moment, obviously, with this unknown. And many of the workers um, were sterile. Uh, Fortunately, the ones that I've been aware of, at least, that did not last. Um, The last major study, and Joe perhaps can correct me and others can correct me, but I believe the last major study done of the workers was in the 1990s, and that showed no signs of cancer, fortunately, Uh, although some of the workers still had shakes, they still had tremors, they still suffered from some of the physical effects of that. The workers scattered. There are some in this area still, and I've managed to talk to some of them, and I would love to talk to more as well. Uh, But following up with them proved difficult uh, to do further testing. In terms of uh, the two owners, uh, I don't know of any uh, testing that was done on either of them that might have happened. I'm just not aware of it. Uh, Huntafta left for New Mexico, and then I think the last that I knew of him was he was working in an oil rig in the North Sea somewhere. Um, So um, that's kind of where they went. In terms of their hex. for the two owners, I'm not sure. Other workers had no ill effects. So it it wasn't all workers, right? But it was a a large number of them that did have it. Yes, please.
1: What was included in the keep on cleanup? And do you think it was sufficient given that it was a POP substance.
0: That's a good question. Um, what happened is life science was dismantled and the, the, um, the equipment and such was buried. So the keep home graveyard is part of that in Hopewell here that I pictured. Um, in terms of cleanup in the river, it wasn't, right? It was left to be covered over by sediment. There were a number of studies done to try to consider what to do with it. Um, dredging, it included perhaps burning some of it. And in the end, they left it in the river. Uh, the other materials were cleaned up and dumped in landfills. And so the concern is that if those landfills stay secure, but if they don't and could continue to leak and cause problems, it shouldn't get out into the ecosystem again. But um, that's, the, that's the, the downside, the risk, right, with these kinds of materials. They're designed to last on purpose, right? They're designed to kill things like insects. And so this particular kind of formulation was purposely created to last a while so it could continue to kill pests on banana plantations, et cetera. Uh, new pesticides have different formulations that don't last in the ways that these do. But, yeah.
3: The um, waste disposal site that Thanks. you show here, is there continuous groundwater monitoring around that? I believe the kepone does adsorb to clay particles, so I'm curious whether it will really would travel.
0: Yeah, there there was monitoring done. I think it was turned over actually to Allied to monitor the, the stuff that was buried on their property. And so they have sent data, as far as I know, to the DEQ. I'm not familiar with the latest data on that, so my DEQ friends here could help us with that. Um, but I don't know when the last monitoring happened at the site. I'm not aware of that. And again, that's the... Concern with this kind of solution is that if there is lack of monitoring, right, lack of a continued uh, presence to keep an eye on it, that uh, there could be a threat that it could again get in the groundwater um, and lead down the road to problems that we've seen in this story. So yeah. Two more. We have okay. And then one okay. Great.
3: Hi, my name is James Saunders. I was a employee of the health department. I was an industrial hygienist that was on the site during the dismantling dispos- the, the of the plant. Wow. I was the chairman of the technical committee that yeah. designed the first Hopewell land disposal yeah. for Kepone, and I was also involved in the second land disposal, which occurred on Allied property some years later. Uh, Kepone was manufactured at one time in the, uh, was the semi-works, on the site in in uh, Allied, mm-hmm. and they decided they, being Allied, decided to dismantle that site and bury it in the same fashion in which we buried the uh, original keep on the building and many of the uh, components in the manufacture. Uh, this was designed by a committee. And the committee was uh, consisted of a geologist from the State Water Control Board, <coughs> uh, a uh, Sanitarian from the health department, myself, and uh, up, up another parties from the water board. Uh, it was with the, in concert with the city. We located a large uh, area of clay that was on the um, site of the landfill. We excavated the hole far beyond the depth and then refilled it with the clay which we had excavated so that we wouldn't run into any seams we obtained a seam a uh, liner which was uh, manufactured in one piece and brought to the site and folded to form like a bathtub uh, we cut the plant into small pieces that in the manufacturing plant not the uh, service station part there was a building behind and put it, placed it on a cushion of sand, uh, refilled it, and put a, another a lap of the uh, uh, plastic material over it. And we put a, a French drain under the site to catch any liquid that might come through the uh, come through the liner. And to date, no liquid has ever shown up. The times that they did, and the the site has had some deterioration in terms of the shifting and so forth. and I'm not sure of the integrity of the sampling system there, but uh, it's not on a routine sample yeah. basis as far as I know.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
3: And also, the uh, people who worked there, there were many more than uh, you indicated. There were only about six people left who had activities on the site which were not displaying some form of, uh, of a problem. And uh, it took some time before they found the key to reducing the symptoms. And yeah.
0: Our last question comes online. Oh, wherever you are. (laughs)
1: Hi, this is a question from Laura, who's following us on Facebook, and she asks, was any large-scale abatement done to the entire area of Hopewell, or Mm -hmm. was this just done at the keypone plant?
0: Yeah, as far as I know, there was no sort of citywide effort. It was more focused on getting the keypone out that they had, um, in the way that Mr. Saunders just just described, so uh, doing sediment samples, all of those kinds of things. And again, leaving the Kepone in the sediment in the water um, was the solution, right? So thank you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you so much.